everybody, and welcome to season two, episode twenty-three of history's great twenty-four. Even my God, I'm, I'm, I'm behind even on myself. Uh, the <laughs> show in which we look back through all of human history and bring you lessons from the greatest stupid people of all time so that you can learn from their mistakes and never repeat those mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. We like screwing up so much so that actually it infects every level of our society at the moment, which we've just been talking about. It's a whole thing. There's just stupidity all around us. But sometimes it's fun. Um, and also, um, yeah, it can it can also distract people from the other crazy shit that's going on. Anyway, Welcome, everybody. Um, <laughs> joining me as ever is my amazing co-host, Derek. Derek, how are you doing and how is Arizona right now in the lead up to Christmas? Uh, it's I'm doing great. I'm, yeah. I'm feeling better, uh, ready to rock and roll into the new year and all that stuff. And uh, I think everything's going well here. I'm just, I just try not to go outside anymore. Yeah, I, I don't know what the weather's like over there, but we've had like a dusting of snow over here. And my mm. dog's like, oh, this is fun. And then like it freezes two hours later. And she's like, no. <laughs> no, not not a chance in hell, mate. You want to go for a walk? Nah. I am so, thankful we don't have that. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of interesting because we live on a uh, a hill up up here in my part of Wolverhampton, like quite high up, but also like my road is on a slight slope, so you see people, and and my house is like just back from the road and slightly down, so you can see people like oh oh like doing that <laughs> down the street. And um, it's it's kind of I want to go out and ice the the pavement, but that's that's not my job. That's the local council's job. And um, yeah, it's um, I'm just waiting for someone to fall over in front of my house, and I'll be like, right, we'll have to go outside and do first aid and call an ambulance. And it, it will invariably it'll happen because more people are out on the streets this year than they were compared to last year. Well, see, so, there's a difference in our uh, our little uh, sides of the world. You say you want to go out there and ice the sidewalk, and I'm thinking you're out there pouring water, waiting for somebody to slip and fall, laugh your ass off. <laughs> And I'm like, I can get, I could get behind that, but you know, yeah. down a hill, that might be dangerous. That, 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 that might be a bit, a bit dangerous, but no, I, I want to, so, sorry, uh, did I say ice the sidewalk? I want to salt the sidewalk, uh, grit it. And uh, we have, yeah, um, <laughs> we have gritters that do that, but not always the most effective in the world. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, things are, things are going well over here. And um, I guess we should talk about, the comment that we had um oh yeah on this is the thing is um we had it ages ago i didn't actually check the <laughs> uh community stuff it was from the middle of may i think it was may 14th and uh, i can't remember the exact quote now but it was basically i'm pretty certain it was an american person because it was on the episode with andrew jackson the very first episode we did and they listened to it and they heard me knocking andrew jackson you know, who died 178 years ago. And they, they were like, well, how dare you, uh, in an American accent, how dare you insult <laughs> our presidents? Get your, what was it? Go after your own. Right, so I will exclusively be focusing on um, British presidents. Um, <laughs> who don't exist. Uh, thank you. For, thank you to the Wilsons for that joke. They, uh, they came up with that one. You should focus on British presidents. Um, yeah. but, um, as a result of that, comment i have i have taken it to heart you know we are open to you know constructive criticism on this podcast and suggestions we we really encourage suggestions we've had a couple psycho brahe there was another guy i've got in the works who was suggested by someone um and we are open to constructive criticism however fuck that guy i'm going to do an american president today because of this so, <laughs> yeah and and just to point out we will get to more british politicians we've done two one 
Maybe uh, one. we did the abdicating. We did, yeah, we did the the abdicating king. We've done uh, the Welsh politician, um, oh. and I think Margaret well, Thatcher's Mark, son. Yeah, we've done Mark Thatcher, who was was never anything more than a screw up. Really, he wasn't an actual politician. But um, we will get to more British politicians because, by Christ, there are so many stupid British politicians out there. Um, but yes, mine today will be an American politician just for our friend out there who's like, get you, ooh, America, love it or leave it kind of thing. <laughs> just like, fuck you, I'll cover who I want, you prick. And oh. I was, was going to say, I, I guarantee that wasn't someone young. That was like uh, an older person who's like, just like, oh, God, how dare this foreigner insult my guy. He's on money. I know. Exactly. So. The guy's on money. He should be held to account. So. <laughs> well, and this, this is the thing too. He says we're bashing, and I said we equally bash everybody. But then oh, yeah. we're not bashing on anybody. We're pointing out areas of improvement. So that we exactly, can... um, you have to remember as well that um, you know this is just a lot of the time. Yes, we are pointing stuff out, and you know we, we are having a bit of a, a laugh about it. But this is just for fun. This is just two guys talking to a few hundred people every week. You know, we weren't, we're not really out here trying to kind of attack anyone or, like, start a culture war. This guy's been dead for nearly 200 fucking years, and most people from that time considered him an asshole. So I don't think I'm taking a particularly um, controversial stance saying that Andrew Jackson, a man who murdered 14 people before he got into office, is a bit of a prick and an idiot. So there we go. I, I, I felt like it was fair. And to be yeah. honest, when, when we did that episode, I was like, huh, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. So and you and you taught me stuff about Andrew Jackson too with the swearing parrot thing. Didn't know that. I didn't dig that up in my research. So yeah. that's the best part. I know. Andrew Jackson taught his <laughs> parrot to swear, and at his funeral it had to be taken away because it was like, motherfucker. Um <laughs> so yeah, um all of that out of the way, we we appreciate we appreciate constructive criticism and the notes but if you want me a foreigner to do something that you you know you don't particularly like if you want me to stop doing something that you don't like the worst thing you can do is to tell me to stop doing it because i will double down just <laughs> to spite you <laughs> so yeah derek um who is your idiot this episode okay so it seems like lately I've been focusing on recent idiots. Uh, sure, yeah. Hot button topics every mm. now and again. Just which which worked really nicely. Our episode performed really well. I guess. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I hope it performed really well. I haven't gotten any hate mail. Uh, no, not yet. Andrew people. Jackson fans are fucking <laughs> furious, but... <clears throat> the the white nationalists, not so much this time. No, uh, too busy hating on everyone else, so... I decided I was going to go way back in the way back machine and, and get a historical idiot. Nice. And so um, he actually helped shape the modern world. And I don't know if it was for the better or not, but we'll find out. He's mm -hmm. born on the 14th of October, 1420, in oh, the well, kingdom okay. of Castile in Spain. Okay. Yeah. Major powerhouse at that time. The oh, Spanish yeah. Empire, you know, kind of one of three four major empires at that time so castile stronghold as well so yeah that's that's really good place to be born if you're going to be born anywhere at that time and his uncle was a respected and celebrated theologian so good place to be born good yes. family to be born into 
his mother actually converted from Judaism to Catholicism before he was Ooh. born. Wow. And at a very young age, he entered the local San Pablo Dominican monastery and became a zealous advocate of the church uh, orthodoxy. Wow. He he earned a, a solid reputation for his learning and piety and uh, quickly was promoted to prior of the monetary of Santa Cruz in uh, a word that I seg, seg, Stegovia. Stegovia. S-E-G-O-B-I-A. I suck at words. Segovia. Uh, no, that, that tracks. Yeah, that works. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. kept thinking Sarajevo, and it's not even close. Mm. So <laughs> anyway, this guy's not in that place. He's at Santa Cruz of Segovia, and it was around that time he meets the Princess Isabella I, who right. you know, later goes on to rule the country. That's right. The two of them become really close they have a, a religious and ideological rapport and he's actually her regular confessor and personal oh. advisor okay that's that's interesting so wow he's made a really strong connection there that's he did so much so that it was kind of at his advising that she married king ferdinand of aragon in 1469 mm -hmm. And he was president at a uh, president. Ha ha. Look what you got me doing. Ah. He, <laughs> he was present at Isabella's coronation in 1474. Right. Two of the most important people in history, we should point out there, Isabella and Ferdinand, specifically for the kind of the course of European history. They are very pivotal for, for good and bad, multiple different ways. So, yeah, that was if he played a part in that, then this man has shaped history. It it's was really kind of at his his urging to wow. get them together to consolidate their kingdoms, and it was probably part of his plan to form a power base that he could draw off of for his own purposes. Right. Of course, yeah. Which, uh, you know, had he not brought them together, the world back then and today could be totally different. Significantly so, yeah. But uh, in fact, uh, he's his name's lost to the pages of history often, unless you're talking to people that are into, you know, things like the inquisition. Sure. Um, he, he did have a hand in most of the major events and possibly helping later on for Columbus to sail to the Americas. Oh, okay. That's really but interesting. Mostly if you have heard about him or, you know, it's probably because of the 2000 or so Spanish citizens that he brutally murdered. Okay. So, in the mid-1400s in Spain, it was kind of either get with the Catholic Church or get the fuck out. Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, and by get the fuck out, you mean die, essentially. So. Essentially, or convert. <laughs> but even or, then, yeah. it wasn't good enough most no, times. No. So, when that Spanish Inquisition was established, Isabella relied on her advisor, this guy, to help her. Mm. And he was tapped by the Pope because of his firmly pro-Catholicism stance, mm. that he was going to be the leader of the Inquisitors in Spain and help in the quest to rid Spain of its heretics. Yeah, this is all bore on around about the time when Spain was still kind of divided uh, because there was a caliphate in the south of the country and, and, and up to the middle of the country, really. And Isabella and Ferdinand were responsible for kind of expelling that that part of um the islamic world from spain um but yeah i mean this was a whole like power a lot of people have said you know it was bought from brought from religious fervor but actually a lot of it will have been a power grab 
to exert their authority on local establishments. Yes. Way. Yeah. And and in that they're expelling thousands of Jewish and Islamic mm -hmm. people yeah. that basically they kick them out with just the clothes on their back. Basically. And yeah. if they wanted to convert, but they took too long, then they were dubbed heretics and kicked out mm -hmm. anyway. Because yeah, they, so they you said, basically well, had to convert on the spot, more or less. Yeah. Otherwise, you were done. Yeah. No panicky conversions. You gotta, no. you gotta want to do it because we told you to, not because you're yeah. scared to. Yeah, because exactly. We told you to. It's like or Russian elections like in Ukraine. You know, you've you've got to you've got to want to vote for us because exactly. of these three machine gun armed people. <laughs> Yeah. Not not in spite of no. No, yes. no, but because you know, you love them and their weapons and what they'll do to you. So yeah. Anyway, so this guy goes on to ensure that the heretics are being properly expelled, and the Pope appointed him the um the Grand Inquisitor of Spain. That sounds very <laughs> dramatic, doesn't yeah. it? The, the Grand Inquisitor. What if and, special robes? Well, see, and then they didn't even really know exactly what their powers were or what their rules were regarding mm -hmm. to what they could or could not do. And <laughs> he was one of the inquisitors that maybe took his job a little bit too far. Yeah, I feel like you have to have just a little bit of a guideline, just like a pamphlet, do's and don'ts of an, inqui an inquisitor. If you're going to like, hey, uh, we've got an opening for the position of inquisitor. Um, experience required, um, religious fervor, fanatic, yeah, maybe a bit of animal torture when you were younger. That's good as well. Uh, so here are the do's and don'ts. Oh, no, wait, we don't have an official paper. Just do whatever the fuck you want. Just get rid of the heretics, please. And that's what he did. Yeah. And for the ones that he couldn't get rid of because they converted to Catholicism too quick mm. and he deems them unfit, instead of like totally getting rid of some of them, he starts making them wear garments uh, with images of hell and flames and demons and dragons and snakes and all that stuff and walk wow. around in that so everybody knows who they are yeah it's ed hardy before it existed bloody hell <laughs> <laughs> another one of his uh, big ideas on dealing with them was something known as the water cure which is Ooh. what we would call waterboarding today ah, ah and a lot of his victims Bush for the water cure were yeah. often women who were seen mm. by him and his inquisitors as the weaker and more likely to confess their sins. Right. Uh, some of the other victims, he would uh, purify them in an uh, auto de fe or act of faith where he burned them alive. Right. Um, purified to death, basically. Pur some of them he'd give the opportunity to confess and he, okay. they could avoid being burned alive. But that just meant that, that he would he would garrot them before he <laughs> lit them on fire, I guess. What the fuck? <laughs> all in all, oh he oversaw the expulsion of over 40,000 Jews from Spain. Wow. And almost as many uh, Islamic people. He only allowed them to take what they could carry, forced them out of the country or forced him into Christianity, or lit him on fire, or waterboarded him, <laughs> or whatever, under yeah. the guise of ridding Spain of heretics. Uh, his, or not his, but Princess Isabella's personal secretary recorded mm -hmm. that it was roughly 2,000 people that he murdered over the, the course of his uh, Spanish Inquisition. That's crazy. And... and 
Yeah. When he died, he, it just passed on and kept going because, as we know, it goes on for a lot longer than just 1498 when he passed away. But towards the end of his life, people started to actually complain. Like, it was a little bit much. And yeah. Back to the Pope. So he retired uh, mm-hmm. to St. Thomas Aquinas Monastery and yeah. Avila, where he stayed until he died. And it was in 1498. But in 1832, right before the end of the Grand Inquisitor nonsense, his tomb was ransacked Mm. and his bones were ritually burned in a auto de fe or act of faith, which could have been retaliatory or honoring his memory. Nobody knows for sure. Um, Yeah, it would be hard to know really what, what end they were on. I would imagine that desecrating a grave is probably i mean we talk about religious fanaticism and fervor and stuff like that and that could possibly explain it but i i think that is more towards the end of disrespect really because you're not going to disturb the bones of someone who would probably have been made a saint at this point um without kind of doing it out of disrespect so that's really interesting yeah i don't know if you make a whole lot of just uh crazy murderer burner people saints but i guess you know whatever exactly um but that that's that's actually all that i've got and it's the story of the first grand inquisitor of spain tomas de tormada wow yeah tomas um absolutely crazy wildlife um obviously we don't know a huge amount about it first of all i want to say hello to olney uh long time no see my friend Paul as well, uh, just supporting my country against France tonight. All the best, my mate. Olney, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Olney was one of the people who used to watch my Twitch streams. Um, England are currently playing France in the World Cup, so that that means we may have a very diminished audience tonight, particularly in the UK. Aha! Aha! So, Olney, thank you. Welcome to the the recording of the podcast and the live stream. Uh, So, yeah, the, the Grand Inquisitor, which is it's like the sexiest fucking Conan the Barbarian style name <laughs> you could possibly get. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the 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 Spanish Inquisition is one of the great black marks in human history of like abject torture and just horrific violence against one's own people, and you know, uh, genocides essentially, um, expulsion, all of that stuff born from the fact that the Spanish felt that they had to defend themselves and the Catholic faith against invaders because they'd been so successfully invaded for the last few hundred years or whatever. So, yeah, I feel like he took full advantage of his opportunity and ran with it. And I am sure that he benefited greatly from the horrific acts that he committed during the uh, the Inquisition. It wouldn't have just been, I'm doing this for the faith, I'm going to wear a hair suit and not eat properly no he would have lived a high life as an inquisitor so well and as like one of the uh personal confessors Mm. of isabella and uh ferdinand uh, yes that man Mm. yeah (laughs) um that's that's i mean it's awful and just for the fact that he was behind like one of the driving forces behind that it's it's funny because you know he he essentially brought together the 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 couple that helped reunite spain to a certain extent, uh, which he should be commended for because it provided um, stability to a nation of people who had like gone backwards and forwards with struggles and stuff in that time. 
But at the same time, the, the, the Spanish Inquisition just kind of rules a lot of that out, the good stuff. So I'm going to have to go a solid 91 with this guy. Ooh. It's, yeah, the Spanish Inquisition is, it's as close to human evil as you can get around that time um, in the sake, you know, in the name of piety. Which it you know is the least pious thing you can do: murder and torture people. So. I I swear the most insane, brutal things that happen in human history yeah. start out because somebody thinks they're doing something good for their beliefs. Yeah, and the evolution of that thought, or the kind of yeah, when you look at like like you say a terrible thing that happens, you have to look at where the foundation of the idea is from. The the, the fear that it comes from or the idea it comes from is usually got a fundamental flaw that everyone in the process of coming up with the idea cuts just sort of ignores or pretends yeah. isn't there you know um whatever atrocity it is it's usually born from some sort of twisted logic where we need to do this to stop this from happening but actually when you looked at it, it you know you know at the initial stage that knowing human behavior it's going to lead to something much worse you know, it's, it's kind of like prohibition. I mean, this is a, an example I can give where we're not going into like Holocaust level thinking, which is, you know, um, but the prohibition thing came about because a lot of people were alcoholics and over drinking in America and people were spending their wages in the saloons and, and you know, beating their wives and just drinking themselves into an early grave. It was like part of the existence in America at that time. And, and the response was, we will take this kind of doctrine of christian thought that has been rising for the last 30 years about stopping people from drinking and make it into law the problem is is that you can't use completely kind of um arguable uh what's the word i'm looking for here um kind of i'm stuck too yeah you know what i mean like <laughs> when people have their own set of beliefs morals you can't yeah. legislate morality right there so you, you can't take a moral thought and turn it into law because your morality is completely subjective there we go i've got the sentence out now so Nailed yeah it too. and that's a lot of it again that the kind of reflections of the spanish inquisition there where people were just like well we have to get rid of the infidels look what they did in the past therefore we'll do this and and if anyone at any point had gone hold on a minute you can't just expel jewish people and islamic people because of their religion you can't just burn people and torture people and waterboard them and all of that shit in the name of piety they, i don't think there would have been any resolve in that room for that kind of conversation people were just like this person's on board the pope's on board therefore we have to be on board so right and i i think that yeah that happens a lot. It seems like yeah. though, where it's, and and the the most important thing is if you're a leader and yeah. you're doing something, and you're thinking, well, they we've got to take this away because they couldn't handle it. Yeah, you're going down the wrong path. Exactly. Yeah, you're not looking into the actual where you can evolve the situation so that you remove the issues around it. It's like the repealing of Roe versus Wade. You're not going to stop abortions happening. You're just going to stop safe abortions happening. People are just going to start dying as a result right. of abortions, babies, wives, you know, people are going to go to prison. And that is the worst thing you can do um, in, a, in a modern society is kind of increase the chances of people dying by you know outlawing um something that is actually a very necessary part of society anyway this guy 
totally not a good Catholic and certainly one of the worst characters in Spanish history. I, I think it's fair to say, along with like, you know, um, the former dictator of Spain. So, yeah, 91, I feel like is a fair score. I'm not I, yeah. sure. Yeah. I, I don't know if my guy's going to get quite as high a score. Um, nowhere near as bad, but still a massive idiot. Um, we will get <laughs> right. on now. This is this is for the person, the nameless person who said that we aren't. What was the word? We aren't funny or interesting. We're yes. not funny or interesting. I, I well, know I you. That. I know. <laughs> like, come on, dude. You know, you you think that's gonna hurt me? I've been hearing that from my mother for thirty fucking years. <laughs> You're no. That's not gonna hurt me. All right. So, um, as a result of him saying that I. A Welsh person should not cover American presidents. I'd like to talk today about Warren G. Harding, the scandal-ridden <laughs> gambler. And I'm going to struggle right out the bat with this fucker's middle name. So, um, Warren Gamaliel Harding. What? Uh, yeah, G-A-M-A, so Gamma, L-I-E-L, Leal, Lyle? Wow. Neil, yeah, you know, I, I think it's sad that I didn't know his middle name. I know, or I thought it would have been something somewhat old, like you know, because we've got Grover Cleveland around this time, or maybe George, you know, something more traditional. But Gamaliel, wow, <laughs> Gamaliel, yeah, was, was he related to any sort of like woodland nymphs? Or I, uh, you know, people what people had, a re- people had a right go at this guy for his like lineage, so we'll get into that. Like, people have a it's so horrible and gross so Uh-oh. yeah maybe i don't know i think it might have just been he came from quite a posh background so maybe there's like and he's got roots his his family are from all over the place so we'll get into that now maybe we'll kind okay. of kind of come to an understanding uh warren gamaliel harding was born on november the 2nd 1865 in blooming grove ohio nicknamed winnie as a child <laughs> He was the eldest of eight children, born to George Tryone Harding. I, I almost called him Tyrone when I, I first read that. Tyrone? Uh, no, it's Tryone Harding, which, I mean, I guess it's weird. Pawn shop for weird middle names. Um, Tryon Harding, 1843 to 1928, usually known as Tryone. And Phoebe Elizabeth Nee Dickerson Harding, 1843 to 1910. Phoebe was a state licensed midwife. So, um, you know, that's immediately like, whoa, okay. Like, she's not a homemaker. Yeah, Yeah. she's professional. She's had training. um, And Tryon farmed and taught school near Mount Gilead. So they were a kind of a middle class family um, around this time. Like, his mother would have been making good money. And as a farmer, and a school teacher, they would have been like either self-sufficient or reasonably well-to-do. Um, so through an apprenticeship and a year of medical school, Tryon eventually became a doctor and started a small practice, which again is going to like elevate. Now you're in upper middle class territory. You know, you might oh, be yeah. able to afford like living servants at this point. Like that's kind of it's good money right there. Um, some of Harding's maternal ancestors were Dutch, including uh, the wealthy Van Kirk family, apparently, which is kind of a surprise. Um, Harding also had ancestors from England, Scotland, and Wales. Boom! Suck on that, <laughs> you stupid prick. I'm going after one of my own politicians here. This stupid idiot is fucking Welsh, sort of. 
Um, sort of kind of good enough. Yeah, it'll do. It'll do. It's tangentially, tangentially uh, related. It was rumoured by a political opponent in Blooming Grove that one of Harding's great-grandmothers was African-American. Um, his great-great-grandmother, Amos Harding, claimed that a thief who had been caught in the act by the family started the rumour in an attempt uh, at extortion or revenge. In uh, 2015, genetic testing of Harding's descendants determined with more than a 95% chance of accuracy that he lacked any sub-Saharan African forebearers within four generations. So smears were common even back in the 19th century in politics. so And it almost worked, fun. too. It did, yeah. Or Show something. us the birth certificate. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. I, know. I forgot Can about that. That shit's still going on 150 yeah. years fucking later. Um, in 1870, the Harding family, who were abolitionists, moved to Caledonia, where Tyrone acquired the Argus, a local weekly newspaper. At the Argus, Harding, from the age of 11, learned the basics of newspaper, journalism, and business. So he learned how to lie, make up sources, harass people, hack into their mobile phones. You get the idea. Um, In Harding's youth, the majority of the population still lived on farms and in small towns. He spent much of his life in Marion, a small city in rural central Ohio, and became closely associated with it to the point where they're basically intrinsically linked the city of marion ohio and warren g harding are essentially one and the same at this point and we'll get to why in a okay. bit but yeah he's like if you go to marion they, they basically renamed the place warren hardingville or something like that um so in harding's youth oh no i've already got that warren hardings uh, rose to high office when he got there he spoke of his love for Marion and its way of life, telling the many young Marionites, I think they missed a big opportunity there. They could have called themselves marionettes. Mm -hmm. You know? (laughs) Um, He told them that he had left and enjoyed success elsewhere, while suggesting that the man, once the pride of the school, who had remained behind and become a janitor, was the happiest of all of his graduating class. He loved cleaning other people's shit. He was so happy in his position in life. Hey, to yeah. each their own, I suppose. Yeah, sure. He probably yep. wasn't so happy. The, though. <laughs> all the, yeah, and actually, if you, you find out a bit more about Warren Harding, he has a penchant for ridiculous bullshit. So uh, upon graduating, Harding had stints as a teacher and as an insurance salesman. So, uh, you know, insurance salesman, journalist, like we've got the foundations of a very good lying politician here, um, and made a brief attempt at studying law before he was like, oh, fuck that, that is boring, which, you know, I agree with. He then raised $300, <laughs> equivalent to $9,500 in 2022 money, in partnership with others to purchase a failing newspaper, the Marion Star, the weakest of the city's three papers, and it's only daily. Can you believe, like, how many people they have in Marion? They have three papers. I know. I'll get to the population later, but they only had like 30,000 people living there. Wow. And you've got three papers. That's like marijuana dispensaries in Oregon town. I know. <laughs> I was going to say, like, <laughs> you can walk down the street in Colorado and go to any one of 10 dispensaries or something like that. But, <laughs> yeah, that's, um, and actually, that reminds me a little bit. I've had this conversation with some of my, like, my, my parents and my grandparents and stuff. And, talked about like the places they used to live in like small towns in north wales 
And they were like, oh, you know, there, there were maybe six, seven thousand people living in this town. Oh, and we had four cinemas. Like, really? Wow. Do you need four fucking cinemas for seven thousand people? Like, yeah, we didn't have a lot to do. So. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. if you think about that, that's four different family businesses. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and they were all like single screen cinemas. We're not talking like multiplexes now. They would all show different films. They'd they'd show like four during the day and stuff. And you know, I I, I get why these small places had as many different businesses as they had because they had to be self sufficient. You couldn't just get in your car and drive like 18 miles to the local supermarket or whatever it is. You know, you had to have something within half an hour's walk of your house so that you could like feed your family basically. So yeah. yeah. Um, and that makes sense. Um, the 18 year old Harding used the railroad pass that came with the paper to attend the 1884 Republican National Convention, where he hobnobbed with well-known journalists and supported the presidential nominee, former Secretary of State James G. Blaine. Never heard of that fucking guy. I'm not I am yeah. horrible at American history. I had uh, it all in here to pass yeah, tests, yeah. and then I just kind of yeah. I used to be off. able to speak multiple languages, and then. Phew, Learned how to drive that pushed that some knowledge out, and learned about wrestling history that pushed some stuff out. So, there's a finite amount of storage space in your brain, folks. Just learn the important stuff. Um, Harding returned from Chicago to find that the paper had been reclaimed by the sheriff for outstanding debts during Oops. the election campaign. Harding worked with the Marion uh, Democratic Mirror and was annoyed at having to praise the Democratic presidential nominee, New York Governor Grover Cleveland, who won the election. Afterward, with the financial aid of his father, the budding newspaperman redeemed the paper. I love that he was like, I don't want to fucking praise that prick over there, but I will. <laughs> hey, I appreciate that, though. You know? Yeah. It's fair and balanced bullshit. I mean, yeah, that, journalism. that's true. Yeah, and actually, you know what? Well, he, he as a newspaperman, he was very keen on that, uh, on balanced approach to news and sourcing your stories and integrity and stuff so this is actually a moment in his life where he's doing a lot of things right so through the late 1880s harding built the star although the city of marion tended to vote republican as did ohio marion county itself was actually democratic harding therefore adopted um, a tempered editorial stance declaring that the daily star was non-partisan and circulated a weekly edition that was moderate Republican. So the main newspaper was basically nonpartisan completely. And then the like Saturday edition or Sunday edition was like moderate Republican. And when we say moderate Republican, we're essentially talking about the America that most people would describe as moderate Republican until 10 years ago when everything went completely insane. So you think of older Republican conservatives. So, uh, that's essentially what he was going for. He was going for the church going, uh, family values, kind of uh, American small dream. government. Yeah, business. small government. Yeah. Yeah. Free market. Kind of what you would think is a traditional Republican lifestyle, which is how I experienced the majority of America because it was a little bit more little bit more to the right of what I was used to. Well, actually a fair bit more than in Wales, but in Britain as a whole, because Britain's quite conservative. Wales is very socialist. And whenever I go to America, um, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, I was a bit like, oh, there's 
don't seem to like gangster rap for some reason and don't seem to like this <laughs> it was like it was a little bit more republican and stuff but at the same time not intensely so i would say okay so yeah um that's just from an outsider's perspective it was probably very different for people who lived there and uh so the policy attracted advertisers and put the town's republican weekly out of business so of his two competitors he's already done away with one of them so oh mm, um, according wrong direction yeah exactly according <laughs> to his biographer andrew sinclair the success of harding with the star was certainly in the model of horatio alger or Alga. He, um, he started with nothing and through working, stalling, bluffing, withholding payments, borrowing back wages, boasting and manipulating, he turned a dying rag into a powerful small town newspaper. A lot of those things aren't stuff that we should be celebrating when you're no. like, hey, here's your wages. Can I have a little bit back? A little bit yeah. short this week. That's, Fuck you, that's mine. It's horrible. <laughs> no, like, fuck that guy. Yeah, I honestly that bums me out, man. Mm. He had success, but he had to fuck people over to get it. Exactly, and like he's he's like I'm all for integrity. I'm all for journalistic integrity. I want uh, a nonpartisan approach to the news, which is what the news deserves, in my opinion. You cannot take a political stance on the news. The fact should be something that speaks for itself. However, he's gotten there by like dodging payments and not giving people money and taking it back from them and that i just oh, fuck that uh much of his success had to do with his good looks apparently he was a very good looking young man although i can't find any pictures of him except when he's like older and looks a bit like uh sam who's that guy that kind of actor who's got like gray hair and a big mustache oh uh, um, from the ranch sam Elliott. yeah yeah there we go that's it yeah (laughs) it looks basically like that guy and i don't know if he had a deep voice we have no recordings but um if he did then you know you've got the whole package of you know arousing housewives right there um his good looks (laughs) affability enthusiasm and persistence but he was also lucky as machiavelli once pointed out cleverness will take a man far but he cannot do without good fortune now this is um this is um, his biographer, Andrew Sinclair, who's saying this now. I would not have quoted Machiavelli because people like to lean on Machiavelli as some sort of political genius. But in truth, he was a failed statesman who spent his dying years in exile writing sycophant- sycophantic letters to powerful men and fucking his way through the Italian countryside. That is Machiavelli. I've read the history about this guy. He's not that fucking clever. He's a bit what? of a dick. What? One out of three ain't bad. Like, Yeah. I mean, you know, going going through the countryside, you know, plowing every woman in sight. <laughs> that's that's yes. Yeah, sowing your wild seed around, and uh, as long as in- they're down, hey, if know? they're down, that's that's their business. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we will get to why uh, using Machiavelli and his poonhoundry as an example is probably not a good thing to use when you're talking about Warren G. Harding. Uh, the population of Marion grew from. Oh, I was completely off by a, a significant margin. 4,000 people in 1880. They had wow, three that's newspapers. kind of booming there, though. Yeah, that's, wow. that's booming. 4,000 people in 1880 uh, to twice that in 1890, uh, increasing to 12,000 by 1900. So wow, this is a big population explosion right there. Um, this growth helped the start, and Harding did his best to promote the city, purchasing stock in many local enterprises, which is great because he's, you know, he's a successful local guy. He's kind of supporting local business. I like that. I just hope he's not trying to turn it into his town, 
which does sometimes happen, you know, when it someone can go owns that everything. Way. Yeah. Um, although a few th- a few of these turned out badly, he was a successful investor with an estate of eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars in nineteen twenty three, equivalent to eighteen million in twenty twenty two money. That's, that's not bad. That's it's not no bad. Billionaire is no billionaire. Although I, I, I think doing. kind of uh, like by nineteen twenty three standards. So you know you're talking. You know, eight hundred and fifty thousand is a shitload of money in nineteen twenty three, especially when you've got like the Great Depression on the horizon. However, you have people like John D. Rockefeller floating around, who is a literal billionaire in the nineteen twenties, and he's like, yeah, like there was just less of them holding on to it. Yeah, there's like two billionaires in the entire world instead of like some fucker on Twitter and someone over here investing money and some guy owns a computer business, you know, and <laughs> someone's riding dick rockets into space. Um, according to biographer John Dean, Harding's civic influence was that of an activist who used his editorial page to effectively keep his nose and a prodding voice in all of the town's public business. That is kind of ominous to me a little bit. You know? Sounds Mr. Burnsy does doesn't it like you're using your newspaper to kind of form general opinions for the people in the town that's, that's seems propaganda it does doesn't it and that's going to carry on he became an ardent supporter of republican governor joseph b foraker he is the only u.s president to have had a full-time uh journalistic training so um that's that's the start of warren g harding's uh, uh, career and life. I'm going to skip over his early political career, but basically here are the highlights. He stops working at the newspaper because he keeps getting health issues from the stress of actually kind of trying to dominate the town and investments and stuff. And he keeps having um, kind of what he would call like fainting spells and stuff like that. But it turns out that it was um, kind of cardiac related. Oh. But yeah, um, he tries multiple times to get elected uh, until finally he gets into the House of Representatives in the 1890s. Uh, he was involved in the Ohio State leadership stuff in the early 1900s, and his newspaper helped to build up his mates and smear his opponents. Um, and he's now forming ties with other journalists who are uh-huh. cribbing from his stories in the star, which is great. Um, he allegedly used his connections in the press with rags like The Menace, and The Defender, which do not sound like newspapers you should be reading. No, it uh, sounds a lot like uh, yeah, yellow journalism type I papers. Was, yeah, <laughs> like those far right papers. Yeah. Yeah, um, I he, get mailed those these now. And I like I, I, I fell for one for a second. I'm like, oh, a newspaper. And then I'm like, wait oh, a yeah. second. Why are all these articles written by the same son of a bitch? And why Aha! do they not like Jewish people? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, in this country, we just get junk mail. I never get like the BNP's newsletter through my letterbox, you know, like I never get anything. Somebody like put me on a list. Oh shit. That's annoying. Uh, but yeah. yeah, apparently he had ties to these newspapers, the menace and the defender, and he used them to publish warnings that his Senate opponent and noted uh, Catholic Timothy Hogan was the vanguard in a plot led by the Pope, Pope Benedict the 15th through the Knights of Columbus to control Ohio. Holy moly. You know, yeah. that's exactly what they needed in the Vatican City. They had to get Ohio. Got to get that, that corn. Got to get <laughs> over there. Uh, which, that's that's like some Pizzagate level, like crazy For, shit right yeah. there, right? 
that's just nonsense. It didn't work. Um, and he he lost and became a junior senator as a result, which is like completely humiliating for a man of his stature. Um, he voted. He was also a bit of a flip flopper. He voted in favor of women getting the vote, but only like he. <laughs> but he only did, the ones that vote for me. Exactly. Yeah. But actually, the way he did it, he was very clever. He said women should only get the vote when everyone in Ohio agrees that they should get the vote. So he was like, I agree with them. It's not on me. So <laughs> he's like, I agree that this popular thing that everyone is behind should happen as long as the people vote for it, which is like his way of saying, well, if they don't vote for it, then it's out of my fucking hands. Um, and he also voted in favor of prohibition, but um, he constantly tried to undermine it um, because he loved fucking booze. Like it was like behind women and poker, this guy fucking loved booze. And he deliberately like he voted in favor of it, thinking that it wouldn't get ratified in time. He was like, you got a three month window. Go ahead. Put it into place. I'm in favor of prohibition, thinking this is going to get bogged down in like jurisdiction and like paperwork. But actually, no, it got ratified. And he's like, oh, shit. Now I've got to stop drinking. Um, but it didn't happen. They, they constantly got drunk in the in like the Senate well, and places like that. Yeah, I mean, if you've got the means, yeah, if, if it doesn't ever, matter. Exactly. If if you ever get a chance to watch um, uh, Prohibition, the documentary by um, oh Christ, who's that documentary filmmaker? He did like the Civil War and baseball. Um, anyway, there's there's a documentary series called Prohibition. And it's got like actual interviews with prohibition people. Um, uh, Ken Burns, that's it. Ken Burns ah. documentary ah, from from PBS. It's one of the best documentary series I've ever seen. And he basically outlines that there was a guy or a few people in Washington that would just pull up in like hearses to the back of the Senate building and be like, "Oh, isn't it sad? This person's passed away." Roll the barrels in. And it was oh, just wow. full of booze that they used to get drunk. And also, before Prohibition came in, a lot of these places and a lot of these rich people stockpiled enough booze to drink themselves to death for the next 10 years. So, yeah. yeah. You got it. You, preppers. The OG preppers. Yeah. The OG, yeah. When the shit hits the fan, I want enough whiskey to be able to die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, when he returned... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's that's kind of where we're at with his early political career. Now let's look at his run for the Oval Office. In 1918, Harding was appointed to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. President Woodrow Wilson took no senators with him to the Paris Peace Conference. Peace Conference, sorry, after uh, World War One ended and everyone met up in Versailles. Um, confident that he could force what became the Treaty of Versailles through the Senate by appealing to the people. That's kind of bold. Not taking any of you people along as like to get them invested in it, you know, so right. that they can rally people when they get back. When he returned with a single treaty establishing both peace and the League of Nations, the country was overwhelmingly on his side because no one wanted war anymore, no, right? After the horrors of World War One. That God, that one sucked. That was just a grinding death. Oh god, yeah. Yeah. Just like at that point. Four years of solid murder for yeah. like, yeah, just wiped out entire generations of men. Um, yeah, so everyone was in favor of that, and um, I 
gone to the wrong page. Many senators disliked Article X of the League Covenant, which committed signatories to the defense of any member nation that was attacked, seeing it as forcing the United States into war without the assent of Congress. So I can understand why they didn't like that. You've got a political system in place for a reason, and you've just kind of circumvented it with like a treaty involving foreign powers. Yeah. So that's not going to be popular, right? No. So, um, Harding was one of 39 senators who signed a round-robin letter opposing the League when Wilson invited the Foreign Relations Committee to the White House to informally discuss the treaty. Harding ably questioned Wilson about Article X. The president completely blanked him and ignored all of his inquiries. The Senate debated Versailles in September 1919, and Harding made a major speech against it. By then, Wilson had already suffered a stroke and while speaking, uh, while on a speaking tour. With an incapacitated president in the White House and less support in the country, the treaty was defeated, and Republicans started looking at Warren G. Harding as a possible presidential candidate because he'd overturned an overwhelmingly popular um, treaty in a matter of a year. So that's I yeah I can see. I, mean, I was gonna, I was going to say I can see now where they're like this guy is ready for the top. Yeah, right. that's that's a big bold move, and mm. yeah, you want somebody that has that sort of sway and swagger. That makes yeah. sense. And you know he he had as a result of that he had a groundswell of support, um, and he, he <laughs> the problem is. He thought he was doing really well. There were like 16 other candidates on the Republican like primary to try and go for the presidential thing. And their first stop is Ohio. And he's like, I've got this in the fucking bag. This is going to be a breeze. And then he does really poorly, um, even in his home state and throughout the rest of the thing. He's like seventh or eighth in the running for the Republican nomination. And then the smoke-filled room happens. Okay. Um, the night of June to uh, June eleventh to twelfth, nineteen twenty, became famous in political history as the night of the smoke-filled room, where legend has it party elders agreed to force the convention to nominate Warren Harding. Historians have focused on the session held in the suite of the Republican National Committee. Uh, Chairman Bill Hayes' um, office at the Blackstone Hotel, at which senators and others came and went, and numerous possible candidates were discussed. Utah Senator Reed Smoot, which is a fucking great name, before his yeah. departure um, early in the evening, backed Harding, telling Hayes and the others that as the Democrats were likely to nominate Governor Cox, they should pick Harding to win Ohio. They um, were only nominating him because they were snickering <laughs> Governor oh, Cox. Oh, yeah, Smoot. <laughs> <laughs> um, Smoot also told the New York Times that there had been an agreement to nominate Harding, but that it would be it would not be done for several ballots yet. That wasn't true. A number of participants backed Harding, others supported his rivals, but there was no pact to nominate him. But the senators had um, quite a lot of power to enforce their decision. So two other participants in the smoke-filled room discussions, Kansas Senator Charles Curtis and Colonel George Brinton McClellan Harvey, a close friend of Hayes, predicted to the press that Harding would be nominated um, because of the liability of other candidates. So, oh. yeah, even Because he'll then, smear them. Yeah, uh, he, he's got newspaper friends. 
and he's like he might be a poon hound and he might like poker and he might like booze but these fuckers oh my god the shit yeah. they're into um it sounds so dodgy this whole like sm- <laughs> this whole like smoke filled room thing yeah it's um, it was different than i expected i mean it's the yeah. wrong kind of smoke filled room i imagine then well exactly a lot yeah, of other think, great stuff yeah. could have happened the other smoke filled room if you're hotboxing <laughs> they they signed the peace treaty there was yeah. world peace everybody and ate then pizza. they just got really hungry <laughs> just really hungry like oh we signed that now he was fucking hungry um but yeah it, it feels like the republican party at this point is playing kingmaker with warren g bit. harding and they're like this guy we can control this guy you know so harding and coolidge were on the ticket, and it was quickly backed by Republican newspapers. But those of other viewpoints expressed disappointment. The New York World found Harding the least qualified candidate since James Buchanan, viewing the Ohio senator as a weak and mediocre man, which I, I yeah, I think they were jealous of his good looks. Um, who And they also said he never had an original idea in his life. That's a bit harsh, but you'll see why that might have been a, a fair thought. Um, in okay. a little bit. The William Randolph Hearst newspapers called Harding the flag bearer of a new senatorial autocracy. It starts you like flag bearer autocracy. Like, oh, okay, that's what they're doing. They're, they're kind of being harsh. The New York Times described the Republican presidential candidate as a very respectable Ohio politician of the second class. Ouch. Which is, yeah, the most 19th century backhanded compliment I've ever heard in my entire life. Harding <laughs> chose to conduct this is this is this gets really interesting. Harding chose to conduct what's called a front porch campaign, like McKinley in 1896. Some years earlier, Harding had remodeled his front porch to resemble McKinley's, which his neighbors felt sig- uh, signified presidential ambitions. He built out his porch and made it like Greek columns. Made it all very flashy. You could fit press on it. You, you multiple different people. You got good camera angles, stuff like that. Super um, politis, poli, pol, politicized, uh, yeah, advertising, campaigning, yes. campaigning. Yeah, exactly. It's like he is preparing himself. So you kind of, I mean, obviously he had great ambitions. So it's not out of the ordinary to say. Well, he was probably like he thought eventually he was going to get some office that he would need to have a picture opportunity a photo opportunity on his porch but like you know this whole kingmaker thing kind of feels like maybe he knew in advance and he was like quickly build the porch out jesus right. um so the candidate renamed uh, remained at home sorry in marion and gave addresses to visiting delegations on his porch in the meantime cox and roosevelt stomped the nation uh, sorry stumped the nation giving hundreds of speeches. They traveled up and down the country, trying to give as many speeches as possible. But this motherfucker was staying on his porch and refused to leave. Yeah, come to me. (laughs) Come on. You want the news? Come to me. Um, So, yeah, I mean, maybe he isn't super original because he's just done what McKinley did. But um, it seems to work. In Marion... Harding ran his campaign as a newspaperman himself. He fell into an easy camaraderie with press covering him, uh, enjoying a relationship which few presidents have ever equaled. 
His return to normalcy theme was aided by the atmosphere the Marion uh, House provided, an orderly place that induced nostalgia in many voters. So what he's doing is he's like, come and have a look at my house. It's really, you remember the good old days? Ah. Look at you when you sat out on your porch and you made decisions there. It's exactly how I'm going to be president. You can't beat nostalgia. It's no. crazy. No. Um, I, damn I'm, good old days. I know. I'm really kind of, I can't, I can't be too angry with this guy. The front porch campaign allowed Harding to avoid mistakes. And as time dwindled towards the erection, his strength grew. The travels of Democratic candidates eventually caused Harding to make several short speaking tours. But for the most part, he remained in Marion. America had no need for another Wilson, Harding argued, uh, appealing for a president near the normal. Fuck you. I'm staying at home on my porch. Come to me. I can't believe this worked, but it did. I feel like I'm watching this right now on the Yellowstone series. Yes, uh, that's a good equivalent. Yeah. That's, that's a good shout, actually. Yeah, I completely agree. I haven't seen a huge amount of Yellowstone, but that like down-home country nostalgia like campaign, it, yeah, it seems it's, to work. Take care of business the old school way on my porch yeah. where the men are men and we shake hands and that's how business is done. And it's just uh, weird. And if you want to appeal to a largely Republican like country at this time, that's a great way of doing it. And also Nailed the it. very fact that he controlled the press. Th this man as a newspaperman realized that you can go in person to multiple different people and really stir up like 5,000 people or 300 people in a factory or, or 150 people at this union. But if you can get really good press out to like... 400,000 people a day, eventually you're going to win from your porch. And that is really, really clever. Oh, um, yeah. He didn't have an awful lot else going for him, though, unfortunately. Harding's vague oratory irritated a lot of people. McAdoo, a political opponent, described a typical Harding speech as an army of pompous phrases moving over the landscape in search of an idea. Sometimes <laughs> these meandering words actually capture a straggling thought and bear it triumphantly, a prisoner in their midst, until it dies of servitude and overwork. <laughs> Fucking roasted. Wow. I know. That's I a like, great put down. God, there's been a few presidents that uh, yeah. could nail that, though. One recently. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like the idea of talking until you arrive at a point. It just, it, it's... Great oratory, great speech givers. They have so much power. But um, the greatest example, I think, of this is um, Lincoln's Gettysburg, right? The Gettysburg Address that famously he gave, you know, all the, it was literally two and a half minutes long. Before he got up to talk, the mayor of Gettysburg had fucking rambled on for like an hour. <laughs> and people were just like, oh, my God, I am fucking done with this day. And then this, like, charismatic guy gets up and four score and blah, 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 just like two and a half minutes. And everyone's like, that was amazing. And he walks off stage and he's like, mic drop, bitch, that's how you do it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, great orators. Um, usually political leaders are pretty good at talking, but not all the time. And it seems that Warren G. Harding was a bit of a, a rambler, really. Um, 
and also it gets really bad. Uh, the, the, clearly, the Democrats got desperate because during the campaign, opponents spread old rumors that Harding's great-great-grandmother was uh, a West Indian person and uh, the other black people, as they put it, uh, might be found in his family tree. Harding's campaign manager rejected the accusations. Uh, was the college professor William Eastbrook uh, Chancellor publicized the rumors based on supposed family research? but perhaps reflecting uh, no more than local gossip. Has there ever been an American uh, election where race hasn't played a factor in it? I'm struggling to think of anything from the last 40 years, really. No, it's it's always some part. Uh, In in our lifetime, it's always been some sort of major part of American elections, and it's it's sad that it comes down to that, really. Um, Cox received 30... Oh, sorry. On election day, November the 2nd, 1920, few had any doubts that the Republican ticket would win. Harding received 60.2% of the popular vote, the highest percentage, yeah, since the evolution of the two-party system, and 404 electoral votes. Damn! mm, That motherfucker crushed it. He absolutely destroyed that. Um, Cox received 34% of the national vote and 127 electoral votes. Campaigning from a federal prison where he was serving a sentence for opposing the war, socialist Eugene Debs received 3% of the national vote. And uh, yeah, he was never a serious threat, but love Eugene Debs. Uh, Man from prison. Yeah, I'm going to run a presidential campaign from prison. It's no less insane than running it from your porch. Really, <laughs> uh, the Republicans greatly increased the majority in each house of Congress. Um, so you see, um, working from home actually does work, Elon. Get with the fucking program, <laughs> just let them work from home, prick. Uh, um, well, he's, he's he's asking a lot of them to work from home now, you know, the ones that he fired. Else. And then, wait, yeah. wait, can you come back, please? Can you come back? It's like, I have some demands, <laughs> Elon. <laughs> I have some conditions. Uh, yeah, can you come back? Uh, I want a 50% pay rise. I want to be able to work from home. I want an electric car outside my front door by tomorrow morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Harding was sworn in on March 4th, 1921, in the presence of his wife and father. Harding preferred a low-key inauguration without the customary parade, leaving only the swearing-in ceremony and a brief reception, a bukkake orgy at the White House later on that day. I'm joking. That last part was me, although maybe not, (laughs) given this guy. In his inaugural address, he declared our most dangerous tendency is to expect too much from the government and at the same time do too little for it. Which sounds like it makes sense, but I don't yeah. think it does. Well, the beginning is the end, and the end's the beginning. Yeah, our the yesterday's tomorrow is today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, our most dangerous tendency is to expect too much from the government, and at the same di- time do too little for it. So, okay, so it's like um, you only get what you give, sort of. Okay, sentiment, I guess. Yeah, that kind of well, that makes sense, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to support the government, and then he goes ahead and just fucking dismantles it. Um, Now let's get to his presidency. Some of Harding's policies included hardening his stance on the League of Nations, deciding the US would not even join a scaled-down version of the League, which essentially 
like ruined it. Like that was the end of the League of Nations at that point. Um, he tried to enforce a massive disarmament policy, which worked. And most of the government ships that were used for military reasons were eventually scrapped, which in hindsight, you probably should have kept a few of them around, but saved money, I guess. So Maybe. We wouldn't have had to build so many in a few years. Exactly. Yeah, just hang on to that steel. Don't sink them. Um, he worked to improve relations with Latin America and stopped, you know, basically invading and massacring everyone um, in that part of the world. He reduced income taxes, uh, which had been raised during the war, and uh, an increase in tariffs on agricultural goods to protect the American farmer, as well as more wide-ranging uh, reforms, such as a support for highways, aviation, and radio. Uh, the tariffs will come back later. He he really fucked up. You can't tariff wars trump they don't work they they never worked and you just end up causing more financial problems as a result um he opposed a veterans bonus which is kind of bullshit um he hmm. pushed massive <laughs> amounts of deregulation where he basically sold off an awful lot of the government's assets and that led to a huge amount of corruption all of these measures combined helped to turn the economy around from a recession to kind of a point where you can start rebuilding. So uh -huh. he arrested the decline uh, of, of the, the economy, but it didn't start to immediately pick right back up. It wasn't like, a, oh, we're, we're in the money again. It's, it was a little bit slower than that. However, the 1920s were a time of modernization. For America, the use of electricity became increasingly common, and mass production of the motor car stimulated other industries as well, such as highway construction, rubber, steel, and building, as hotels were erected to accommodate the tourists venturing up and down the roads. Uh, this economic boost, combined with the lowering of taxes and federal spending, because uh, he cut federal spending like down to the bone, helped bring the nation out of recession and slowly increased the, uh, the the economic state of the United States at the time. To improve and expand the nation's highway system, Harding signed the Federal Highways Act of 1921. From 1921 to 23, the federal government spent $162 million, equivalent to $4 billion in 2022 Ooh. money, on America's highway systems, infusing the U.S. economy with a large amount of capital. So he cut back government spending in some areas, but spent the majority of it expanding the highways, which was a very wise decision at the time. It, um, yeah, it seems like he's doing some really good things. As Although, presidents, yeah. that's I'm nervous, though, because <laughs> I feel like good things like that might lead to something. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not so good. Um, he was, um, yeah, he proclaimed that America was in the age of the motor car, which reflects our standard of living and gauges the speed of our present day life. Here he comes, here comes Speed Racer. He's a <laughs> demon on wheels. Choo, choo, choo. Um, although Harding's first address to Congress called for passage of anti lynching legislation, yes, that was a thing at one point, he initially seemed inclined to do more for African-Americans uh, to do no more. I apologize for saying that. No more for African-Americans than Republican presidents of the recent past had. He asked cabinet officers to find places for blacks in their departments. Um, Sinclair suggested that the fact that Harding received two-fifths of the Southern vote in 1920 led him to see a political opportunity for his party in the solid South. So this is where there's a seed shift happening. Okay. Um, on October the 26th, 
1921, Harding gave a speech in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Alabama sorry, to a segregated audience of 20,000 white and 10,000 African-Americans. Harding, while stating that the social and racial differences between whites and blacks could not be bridged, he urged political rights for the latter. So many African-Americans at the time voted Republican, especially in the Democratic South. And Harding stated that he did not mind seeing that support. And if the result was a strong two-party system in the South, he was all for it. Um, he was willing to see... Th th this is the worst part, though. He was willing to see literary literacy tests for voting continue, if applied fairly, to white and black voters. Wherever, uh, sorry, whether you like it or not, Harding told his segregated audience, unless our democracy is a lie, you must stand for that equality. But it's not equal thing, though, is it, Warren? Because when the education system is aimed at providing more opportunities and better quality of education for one group of people, then literacy tests are still a continuation of discrimination. You've yeah. just like shifted the goalposts with that right. one. When you don't have the access to the education that the yeah. counterpart has, it's not equal. Exactly. So instead of like denying African-Americans the vote, he's like, we want you to have rights. We want you to have a voice. However, to vote for those rights and to make your voice heard, you have to pass a test so that you can vote. But all you have to do is be educated, like everyone's educated. No, that's not, that doesn't wash. You got to kind so, of wonder if they didn't realize that it everybody couldn't just read books and be educated and everybody didn't just have people that taught them. Yeah. But I mean, you, it's pretty easy to see, you would think. But yeah, I th I feel like that there is, there's definitely an element of disconnect and naivety and, um, you know, absolutely no idea of what's going on in his own country at this point to a lot of what Harding's doing. But at the same time, you know, this guy must have known something. And he's like, well, look, we can't disenfranchise these, uh, you know, African-American voters because some of them vote Republican. However, we still don't like them. So instead of not giving them the vote, we'll just make it really fucking difficult for them to vote, which is bullshit. Yeah, so, it's that loophole of like making you think that you care without actually caring. It's, you know, advertising. Yeah, exactly. So um, entering the 1922 midterm congressional election campaign, Harding and the Republicans had followed through on many of their campaign promises and actually had done reasonably well for the country as a result. But some of the uh, fulfilled pledges, like cutting taxes for the well-off, did not appeal to the electorate because who wants rich people to have more fucking money? Um, the economy had not returned to normalcy. It was on the in improvement side of things, but unemployment was still at 11%, and organized labor were very angry over the outcome of uh, the strikes where they'd basically been battered by police and stuff like that. Um, a month after the election, the lame duck session of the outgoing 67th Congress met. Harding then believed his early view of the presidency, that it should propose policies, but leave their adoption to the Congress was no longer enough, and he lobbied Congress, although in vain, to get his um, ship subsidy bill through, which didn't happen. Um, 
once Congress left town in early March 1923, Harding's popularity began to recover amazingly. The economy was improving, and the program of Harding's more able cabinet members, such as Hughes, Mellon, and Herbert Hoover, was showing results. Most Republicans relieved, uh, sorry, realized that there was no practical alternative to supporting Harding in the 1924 for his re-election campaign. In the first half of 1923, Harding did two things that were later said to indicate foreknowledge of his own death. He sold the Star newspaper, though undertaking uh, to remain as a contributing editor for 10 years after his presidency, and he made a new will, which is like hmm, a bit of a warning sign right there. I think. He, okay. Yeah. So he knew something was coming, eh? Yeah, I mean, he'd, he'd been aware that there was... Uh, he'd, he'd had a lot of health issues throughout his life like kind of occasional he he'd been confined to what were recuperation spaces like he'd go on holiday for a month and stuff to to recuperate because he said it was stress and he was tired but actually it was also down to his lifestyle and uh, unfortunately he had a uh, his family had a history of heart issues so um you know he had to take care of that Back to this as well. Harding had a long suffered, uh, long suffered health issues, but was not experiencing symptoms. He tended to eat, drink, and smoke too much. By 1919, he was aware he had a heart condition. Stress caused by the presidency and by Florence Harding's own chronic kidney condition debilitated him, and he never fully recovered from an episode of influenza in January 1923. In early June 1923. Harding set out on a journey, which he dubbed the Voyage of Understanding, which, I mean, if it can improve his speeches, then that's at least something. Uh, <laughs> the, president, <laughs> the president planned to cross the country, go north to Alaska, uh, journey south along the West Coast, then travel by U.S. Navy ship from San Diego along the Mexican and Central American West Coast through the Panama Canal to Puerto Rico and return to Washington at the end of August. Harding loved to travel and had long, although apparently not when he's running for election, and long mm. contemplated a trip to Alaska. The trip allowed him to speak widely across the country to politic and to bloviate in advance of the 1924 election campaign and give him some rest away from Washington's oppressive summer heat. I'm really unwell and exhausted. Let's go on a fucking world tour. That'll sort me out. Yeah, gosh, that sounds like a real Aussie thing to do. It does, doesn't it? Like I understand that if you are in the company of like the US Navy, you've got a private cabin or you know, you, you're on your own private train car or whatever, it's gonna be somewhat relaxing, but anyone who's done a lot of traveling, even if you do it in business class or first class, will tell you that it's fucking tiring. And if you're oh, yeah. doing that nonstop for weeks and months at a time and giving speeches and doing policy like via, I guess, like telegraph or whatever it would have been at the time, you're going to be tired, especially if you know you have a heart condition, you're always getting stressed and your wife has a chronic kidney condition. The last thing you should be doing is touring the country and yeah. the various bits around the country. You know, that's kind of crazy. Seems like it would take a toll. It certainly did. And it's almost like he, he wanted to be offed at this point because he's doing the least smart thing you can do anyway um Harder ultimate mic drop uh, yeah like i'm i'm going to die on this trip boom um <laughs> so harding's political advisors had given him a physically demanding schedule even though the president himself 
ordered it to be cut back. They were just like, nah, fuck you. You can do this. <laughs> in Kansas City, Harding spoke on transportation issues. In Hutchinson, Kansas, um, agriculture was the theme. In Denver, he spoke of his support of prohibition and continued west, making a series of speeches not matched by any president until Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, man, he really did quite a few tours. Um, Harding had become a supporter of the World Court and wanted the US to become a member. In addition to making speeches, he visited Yellowstone and Zion National Parks and dedicated a monument on the Oregon Trail at a celebration organized by venerable pioneer Ezra Mika and others. This is not good for his health. This is kind yeah, of crazy. a lot of work. It's way too much work. On July 5th, Harding embarked on USS Henderson in Washington State. He was the first president to visit Alaska and spend hours watching the dramatic landscape from the deck of the Henderson. That I like. You know, I'm glad that he was able to experience that. Yeah, that would actually be pretty neat. I, Just... I think so as well. I kind of quite like to do an Arctic cruise. Part of me really wants to do it, see the northern lights and experience the weather. That would be great. Also, while having a spa in the ship, you know. <laughs> I would, yeah, I want to see the 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 ice sheets, you know, the, where they take you by the glaciers and stuff. Oh, that would yeah. be that would be neat. If you uh, if you get a chance, and this is completely off script now, there's there's a series of videos um, on YouTube by these like kind of traveling uh, YouTube vlogger type people, Kara and Nate, I think they're called, um, and they did a an, an Arctic cruise on a brand new all new ship that costs £30,000 per person to go Ooh. on this cruise. You are one of like 120 people on board. It's it's a big ship, but like small numbers. Your cabin is <clears throat> luxurious, but the amenities on board, they have heated like handrails oh. all the around the ship. They've heated like benches all the way That'd around. That'd make it so way nicer. <laughs> yeah, so you can sit out and watch like the, the polar bears and the seals and all that, but your ass is warm so that's, the, that's um, important exactly and like when you get into the ship they have the usual stuff like multiple restaurants they have multiple like like places to go and hang out they have a cinema and all that stuff but they also have an outside um heated pool so that you can sit and watch the arctic view go by in a heated pool they also have this is something i think i want to mention to you they have a cognac and cigar lounge uh, ah. which sounds really fucking cool that is that is fancy yeah is they have two scale. gyms yeah absolutely two gyms and also um uh, what was the other thing oh yeah they have like a, a a kind of an infused steam room so that you can be steamed and then you can have a, a go in like one of like four jacuzzis and like a uh yeah just like that's the kind of cruise i want to go on and also all the food and drink is included so you're not going to get like nickel and dimed the and for all this there. advertising, we will take two free trips. <laughs> yes, if someone wants to donate us sixty thousand dollars, we would gladly go on this this cruise. It sounds amazing. Um, so yeah, uh, just just away from that, just going on that kind of cruise through the Arctic Circle uh, it sounds kind of amazing. Sounds like a once in a lifetime experience, and I'm glad he got to experience that because good for him. You know, It'd be way it, better than the Panama Canal, I bet. Fuck yes, especially at this time. Like, oh, there's that's where someone died, and that's where someone else died, and that's where that person died, and that's yeah. just the Panama Canal for like ten miles. Um, so yeah, and uh, on July, there it is. On July twenty sixth, nineteen twenty three, Harding toured Vancouver, British Columbia, as the first sitting American president to visit Canada. 
he was welcomed by the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, Walter Nickel, uh, the Premier of British Columbia, John Oliver, not the TV presenter, and the Mayor yeah. of Vancouver, and spoke to a crowd of 50,000 people. That's, wow. that's a big deal, but that's like the entire population of Canada at the time. Holy <laughs> shit. Um, Harding visited golf courses uh, along the trip. Massive golf fan, this guy. And um, one particular golf course in Canada, he only completed six holes before becoming so fatigued that he had to go for a rest for a few hours. He played the 17th and 18th hole, so it would appear he'd completed his round. Um, he didn't Brilliant. succeed in hiding his exhaustion, though, and one reporter uh, said he looked tired and that a rest of mere days will be insufficient to refresh him. Um, so, yeah. About... So he looked half dead. He looked half dead. Not a not a good thing to do. Um, in Seattle the next day, Harding kept up his busy schedule, giving a speech to 25,000 people at the stadium at the University of Washington. In the final speech he gave, Harding predicted statehood for Alaska, which I don't think that's like a massive prediction. I think that was on the cards, really. So, yeah, you found yeah. oil at this point and you like cars and Alaska's full of it. So just fucking, yeah. That's going to be ours. That's that's, that's ours. <laughs> Hello, Russia. Give us that bit, please. Also, no one can drink up there. Uh, the president rushed through his speech, not waiting for applause from the audience, just fucked off, uh, which is a bit of a, a warning sign. Harding went to bed early the evening of July 27th, 1923, a few hours after giving the speech at the University of Washington. Later that night, he called for his physician, Charles Sawyer, complaining of pain in the upper abdomen. Sawyer thought it was a recurrence of a stomach upset, but Dr. Joel T. Boone suspected a heart problem. The press was told Harding had experienced an, an acute gastrointestinal attack. That's bullshit. Um, and he was scheduled, uh, his schedule weekend in Portland was cancelled. He felt better the next day as the train rushed to San Francisco, where they arrived at the morning of July 29th. He insisted on walking from the train to the car and was then rushed to the Palace Hotel where he suffered a relapse. Doctors found that not only was his heart causing problems, but also he had pneumonia. Which, uh oh. Yeah, that's like, you're fucked, mate. Sorry. Time's up. Um, heart condition and pneumonia. You've been you know, spending too much time in the colds. Um, like the and symptoms was... of heart failure at yeah, that point. Basically. And also, yeah. You shouldn't be touring when you're like this. He was confined uh, to bed rest in his hotel room. Doctors treated him with liquid caffeine and uh, digitalis. Fuck me. Um, yeah, that's not good. And he seemed to improve. Well, you would if you've been fucking pumped full of caffeine. Um, jacked up. Yeah. Like his heart is exploding. Let's give him caffeine quickly. Um, Hoover released Harding's foreign policy address advocating membership in the world court. And the president was pleased that it was favorably received. Um, by the afternoon of August 2nd, Harding's condition still seemed to be improving. And his doctors allowed him to sit up in bed. Thank you very much, doctor. <laughs> um, at around 7.30 p.m. the following evening, sorry, that evening, Florence was reading to him a calm review of a calm man, a flattering article about him from the Saturday Evening Post. She paused and he told her, that's good, go on, read some more. Those were his last words. Well, um, yeah, she resumed reading when a few seconds later, Harding twisted convulsively and collapsed back in bed, gasping. 
Florence Harding immediately called the doctors into the room and they were unable to revive him with stimulants. So rub cocaine in his teeth quickly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Harding was pronounced dead a few minutes later, at the age of 57. Wow. Which, even back in the 1920s, that's fucking young, especially for a president, you know? So, Oh, yeah. God. Um, Harding's death was initially attributed to a cerebral hemorrhage, as doctors at the time did not generally understand the symptoms of cardiac arrest. Florence Harding did not consent to have the president autopsied because he's they're probably going to find lovers' pox in him in there. Sorry. Um, now you might be wondering, after all this, why is Warren Harding on this podcast? Um, well, I'll tell you. Um, there's been a debate going on for decades about whether he is, in fact, one of America's worst president. And from what I've told you, you wouldn't necessarily think that was the case, really, because he stopped a recession, kind of got the country back on track. Did some good things, yeah. Did some good things, certainly more than, you know, God knows how many dozen forgettable presidents, right, that oh, yeah. did nothing yeah. in their time or died before they even got a chance to do anything. But here's the thing. Warren G. Harding's claim. So the, I'm going to present you with the two sides of the argument of whether he is a good president, like one of the the uh, sorry, one of the worst presidents ever, or people who are like, nah, it's overblown. Um, so Warren G. Harding's claim to infamy, infamy rests on a spectacular, spectacular ineptitude captured in his own words: "I am not fit for this office and should never have been here in the first place." That's a quote from the man himself. I don't know. I kind of like that. Yeah. I'm not good enough to be here. Holy shit. Like, yeah. they played Kingmaker with a man who didn't want to be king. I think so. that that makes him better. Yeah, to a certain extent. He didn't think he deserved to lead. However, it gets, gets worse. A former newspaperman and publisher who had a string of offices in his native Ohio, he was an unrestrained womanizer. Early accounts state that he had at least 40 extramarital affairs, noted for his affability, good looks, and imp uh, implacable desire to please people. Uh -huh. Unless they're African-American, in which case he's, he's not that bothered. Well, he likes um, to please them, just not if it's uh, inconvenient or yeah. bothers him any. Exactly. And if they're women, he definitely likes to please them. <laughs> um, it was good, his father once told him, that he hadn't been born a girl because you'd be in the family way all the time. You can't say no. The man liked to fuck. <laughs> hey. I, you know. As um, long it, as it's all consenting. As long as it's consenting. That doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really matter. But yeah, like, he basically, like, and when I say 40 extra mental affairs, these weren't one night stands. These went on for months and years. Yeah, and that's kind of not cool. Yeah, and it was like multiple women at any one time. Four months and years. So no he would his have heart like, broke. I mean, yeah, no wonder his heart fucking exploded. <laughs> he's doing a Tom Jones. He's got a woman in every different postcode of oh, the country. Boy. Crazy. Um, Harding should have said no when Republican bosses in the proverbial smoke filled room, a phrase that originated with this very instance, made him their 11th hour pick for the highest office. He was so reassuringly vague in his campaign declarations that he was understood to support both the foes and the backers of the U.S. entry into the League of Nations, the hottest issue of the day. So he couldn't, like, he was such a bad speaker, no one knew where he stood. So that's that's not good. Once was it in the bad White or House, was it good? Well, I guess it's smart, really, isn't it? No one knows where you stand, but they can draw their own conclusions, I guess. And 
vote for you if it's a good conclusion. Uh, once in the White House, the 29th president busied himself with golf, poker, and his mistresses, while appointees and cronies plundered the US government in a variety of creative ways. Some served competently, like Charles E. Sawyer, the Harding's personal physician from Marion, who attended to them in the White House and alerted Harding to the Veterans Bureau scandal. Um, others provided ineffect proved ineffective in office, such as Daniel um, R. Crissinger, a Marion lawyer who Harding made comptroller of the currency and later a governor of the Federal Reserve Board. Another was Harding's old friend, Frank Scobie, director of the Mint, who Tranny and Wilson, who are his biographers, noted did little damage during his tenure. Still others of these associates proved corrupt and were later dubbed the Ohio Gang. He brought in his mates and uh, they like handed out um, basically like contracts for under the table shenanigans. Most of the scandals that have marred the reputation of Harding's administration did not emerge until after his death. The Veterans Bureau scandal was known to Harding in January 1923, but according to his biographers, the president's handling of it did him little credit. Harding allowed the corrupt director of the Bureau, Charles Forbes, who'd stolen money to flee to Europe, um, though he later returned and served prison time. Harding had learned that Doherty's factorum at the Justice Department, Jess Smith, was also involved in corruption. The president ordered his attorney, attorney general, Harry Doherty, to give Smith... To, sorry, to get Smith out of Washington and removed his name from the upcoming presidential trip to Alaska. He's like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. Disappear him. Uh -huh. um, instead of arrest him and put him on trial and shove him in prison, it was get him the fuck away from my office, basically. Um, which I guess is, is one way of doing things, but it doesn't look good when you look back on it. Um, it's uncertain how much... Um, Harding knew about Smith's illicit activities when he was handing out like contracts to people like, oh, you want oil? Great. Here you go. Ten grand, please. Um, so, yeah, he, it's uncertain. But the very fact that he made him disappear, I think that kind of speaks volumes, really, to the fact that he knew something. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's un uh, So I have no trouble with my enemies, Harding once said, adding that it was his friends who keep me walking the floor at nights. So he knew that his friends were fucking him over. I, I'm well, pretty certain he knew what was going on. Probably shouldn't have those friends. I know. They ain't your friends, mate. Those are people that are just there to line their own pockets. You need to get rid of them. Um, almost a decade later, his former attorney general called Harding a modern-day Abraham Lincoln, whose name and fame will grow with time. That time is still a long way off. That's not happening. Other people maintain it wasn't so bad. Um, Harding was traditionally been ranked as one of the worst presidents in 1948 poll conducted by Harvard University historian Arthur Schlesinger Sr. conducted a survey of scholars' opinions of the president, ranking Harding last amongst the 29 presidents considered. He's gone up since then. He's now considered like 11th worst well, or maybe 9th in some polls. So, Yeah, there's some people that were trying to be bad, I think. I know. And after 1948, we had quite a few dodgy presidents, really. <laughs> um, he He's also been last in many polls since, 
which Farrell attributes to scholars reading little but sensational accounts of Harding. Murray argued that Harding deserves more credit than historians have given him. He was certainly the equal of Franklin, Franklin Pierce and Andrew Johnson, a Benjamin Harrison, or even a Calvin Coolidge. Uh, maybe the case. In concrete accomplishments, his administration was superior to a sizable portion of the, those in nation's history. Um, Kofi believes the academic lack of interest in Harding has cost him his reputation. The scholars still rank Harding as a nearly dead last among presidents. Biographer Eugene Tranny faults Harding's own lack of depth and decisiveness as bringing about his, tra his tarnished legacy. Still, some authors and historians continue to call for a re-evaluation of the Harding presidency. In The Spoils of War, 2016... Bruce Bueno de Mesquita and Alistair Smith place Harding first in a combined ranking of fewest wartime deaths and highest annual per capita income growth during each president's time in office. Murray argued that Hargin sowed the seeds for his administration's poor standing. In the American system, there's no such thing as an innocent bystander in the White House. If Harding can rightly claim the achievement of a Hughes in state, or Hoover in commerce, he must also shoulder responsibility for a doherty in justice and a fall in interior. Especially must he bear the onus of his lack of punitive action against such men as Forbes and Smith. By his inaction, he forfeited whatever chance he had to maintain the integrity of his position and salvage a favourable image for himself and his administration. And it was the subsequent popular and scholarly negative verdict was inevitable, if not wholly deserved. So there okay. we go. That's See. Warren G. Harding. And it's it's a difficult one, this. I appreciate that because this man did some a lot of good in, in a number of different ways. But at the same time, it's balanced, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the it seems like in the, the 20s, Mm. through their men being womanizers and drinking a lot and smoking too much and gambling was just kind of a thing i yeah. mean like you said everybody was drunk all the time so they had to do yeah. prohibition to fix it exactly so, yeah and uh, also we we talk uh, we haven't really mentioned it the 20s were called the roaring 20s for a reason right people were drinking they were going out clubbing. They were dancing the Charleston and, and shit like that. Like people were having a good time. It was a party atmosphere. And it was a result as a result, largely as this of this party atmosphere and this, we don't need to worry about anything that led to the financial crash of 1929 because people weren't paying attention to what was going on around them. And that's so, kind of one of the things that I was going to say too, is the deregulation and yeah. the homie hookup stuff and allowing corruption mm -hmm. to manage stuff yep. may have looked good initial initially and early on but yep. it's it's that that brings about stuff and then when hoover steps in it and makes it worse exactly it's i don't know i feel like we, they do that a lot like they take credit for good stuff knowing full yep. well that they fucked everything up for people in just a few years yeah Exactly. He laid the foundation for a financial disaster by stripping the government of assets and um, deregulating a lot of stuff that really could have done with more regulation. It's it's funny because if you look at the financial crisis of 2008, 
a lot of that can be pointed back to when Bill Clinton repealed Glass-Steagall, where, you know, banks had to have your stuff stowed away safely in like a nice 3% annual return. And the rest of the stuff that you gave them to invest, they could do whatever they want with that. But your stuff, your mortgage, your 401k, your, you know, all of that stuff, that was safe. Nothing was going to happen to that. He repealed that and the banks went, oh, great. We can all put it together. And now we've got a big chunk of money to play with. And as a result, you know, everything went to shit. So that started with Bill Clinton in the mid 90s doing that shit. So, yeah. And it's I mean, damn, it was booming in the 90s. Yeah. You know, which not sure why. And then, yeah. (laughs) You can look back on it piling on ever since. (laughs) I know you look back and say, well, you know, Bill Clinton amassed a a huge amount of wealth for the United States, like a huge amount of savings the country had in its in its like pockets. And then Bill uh, and then George Bush spent it all. And it just all went to like Halliburton and people like that during the war. And, and, you know, then there's a massive deficit of foreign debt and stuff like that, which started with. George Bush, but actually, you know, you can say that the money that uh, Clinton got was as a result of Reaganomics, and you know, you can go all the way back, you know, Rome started this and all of that stuff, but ultimately, I think when we look at Warren Harding, and I, I, I do think it's fair to say he's one of the worst presidents because he laid the foundation for so many things to go wrong in America that had massive knock-on effects, and also to say that he was indecisive i think is fair because he basically delegated everything and didn't want to do any of that like he just wanted to poon and drink and like play around and just like his he wanted his big dream projects right he wanted like i'm gonna set up the road system and i'm gonna spend shit loads of money on that and i'm gonna help radio infrastructure and all these big projects but like the the actual day-to-day business of managing the country he didn't give a shit about that Right. So. And I was going to say, when did he have time to run anything when he, he was didn't busy running it down? You know, I know. So so that's Warren G. Harding. It, it's a very complex thing because, the, yeah, I mean, I'm not the most, you know, kind of qualified person to talk about his legacy. I feel like it's a mixed bag. Um, but the negative stuff that came about as a result of him. And again, it's a bit like Andrew Jackson, like setting in stuff in place for the Trail of Tears that ended up killing loads of native american families as a result of like his policies and stuff a lot of these knock-on effects are what make people worse with hindsight so um yeah what are you going to score warren g harding that's yeah gosh this one's hard because i feel like um he was honest that he yeah didn't want to be there and knew he didn't want to be there but they made him be there exactly yeah uh, but he wanted to be there. I mean, yeah. d- no bullshitting. You mm. don't uh, be a, 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 a newspaper man and get involved in wanting to uh, marionette things around <laughs> uh, <laughs> if if you don't want the power. So Yeah. And I, he tried to get elected extra. a lot. Yeah. And I'm going to rate mm. him extra because he worked himself to death on purpose, I think, so that he yes. didn't have to deal with it. I yeah, I kind of get that impression as well. So, so gosh, like, I don't want to go too high though because no. like, he didn't seem to kill anybody. I mean, no, he, was he inept, didn't. And which is he makes... was just inept and womanizing, which you know, like uh, you could be saying anything about any politician right there. You know, inept womanizer, 
That's like anyone from either side of the aisle over the last let's, 200 years. Let's give them a score of 78, almost a B. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, <laughs> almost a B. Like, that seems fair because, you know, he put... He did a lot good. You know, the expansion of the highways was a very wise decision. Important, yes. Yeah, really important. And, you know, focusing uh, more on international affairs as opposed to internalizing a lot of the issues was was a good move. I mean, the, the kind of the fucking up of the League of Nations was not a good idea, but that was really, that was built on sand foundations, really. So that was always going to happen. But, you know, he did some good and... You know, he did stuff that was probably nowhere near as bad. But the problem is, is that he was kind of a lame duck president. And also the stuff he set up um, eventually caused a huge economic collapse. And the cronyism he put in place was a complete disaster. So, yeah, I will take a 78. It's definitely not the worst American president of all time. Not even close. I don't even think Andrew Jackson is the worst American president of all time. I think there have probably been worse. Rough. He was just rough, yeah. Andrew Jackson. Jackson was just an arsehole of his time, yeah. really. Like You'd have gone back to that time, and if you'd lived in that world for, say, 10, 15 years, and you'd seen the kind of horrors that were around and how short people's lives were, I think you'd have looked at Andrew Jackson as like, oh, he's just like an arsehole. You know, he's yeah. not like, uh, you know, he murdered people, but for the time, a lot of people were killers, you know? Yeah, so, that's true. That is so, true. Yeah. So I, I, I feel like we have more American presidents on the horizon, but uh, we will eventually get to the worst ones in time. I've voiced one of them, and I, I think you'll be able to guess who that is. Um, so uh, we'll get to him in time, but also some of the more modern ones as well. Some of the really stupid ones that like cocaine and were racist. And yeah, we'll, we'll get to them. too. <laughs> so and uh, yeah, but I really enjoyed um researching warren harding because he's one of those presidents where i only knew few bits and I, I knew that he was not particularly well liked by like mainstream like kind of opinion but you know i i genuinely don't think he was as terrible as people made out he he was like standard run-of-the-mill republican for the time like tried to take away government authority and power and tried to put it in the hands of um private interests but unfortunately he did it in corrupt ways so yeah, you know, not that different. It's one, uh, what is it? Six of one, half dozen in the other. Absolutely, yeah. And I don't think we can have any like real surprises about that because you know this is an era of like Tammany Hall politics with Democrats and stuff. And boy, were the Democrats corrupt at this time, and still probably are because they're politicians at the end of the day. But you know, this is a, a world where corruption was rampant. Because America was still a very young nation. You know, you look at young nations now in the rest of the world in this day and age, and corruption runs rampant because a few core people get control of stuff and they give the power to their mates. It's still happening in Russia. So, yeah. you know, when you have friends who have too much power and not enough competence, this happens. So America was still a relatively young country at the time. They were still getting past the idea of people being cronyistic it still happens in my country there is an internal investigation going on in the uk over a, a member of the house of lords who gave or who lobbied for contracts during covid for her husband and who yeah. got hold of like 26 million pounds worth of well, money so yeah well know. i mean it's it's happening here you got nancy pelosi's husband yeah. with chip stocks and you got uh biden's son and then yeah everybody in trump's family 
every member of the Trump family <laughs> and, and Hunter Biden. Like, I understand he's been made of a bit of a scapegoat for the right wing press, but he is a fucking idiot as well. So he's probably going to make one of these once he gets yeah. done doing idiot stuff. Yeah, we'll give it a couple of years and we'll get on to Hunter Biden, that's for sure. But yeah, I, I feel like nepotism and cronyism, it's always been a part of politics. It just kind of, you find that there's less acceptance of it over time. Um, but for, unfortunately, it's uh, it's part of the fabric of Western civilization at this point. We just need to hopefully learn our lessons and learn that we need to move on from this way of doing business. Do what Genghis Khan did. It's a meritocracy. And if they don't agree with you, eat the children. No, I'm joking. Don't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so that's our show for this week. Um, Derek, how did you find um, kind of looking into the Spanish Inquisition? That's going to be a really tough thing to research. Monty Python. Yes, this, this, I, did, <laughs> I resisted the urge. <laughs> that's that's how I landed on it, and I ah. found researching it not as hilarious, but no, still no. interesting. No one accepts the Spanish. No expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's um, it, it's a dark period in human history, but actually really interesting from a historical point of view. And and this time in America as well, when you know America is becoming a modern nation, and like I feel like when you're talking about Warren Harding and radio and the expanding of the road networks and stuff. I can almost hear like George Gershwin going. It's like the start of that America that like, okay, this is the world power right now because they're building and you're expanding and Alaska's becoming a state. Hawaii is going to become a state. And you know, the, the central power starts in the early part of the 20th century and you know he is part of that so it was really interesting researching that time in history um thank you guys so much um we are going to be live again tomorrow although if you're listening to this uh after the fact don't worry about it but we're going to be live streaming again because we're going to try and get um to episode 50 uh, as quickly as possible because it's coming up to christmas and we need to give ourselves a bit of a break and get ready for the next season i have gotten in touch with some very talented young people of the Wilson family who will be producing new theme music and new animation for us in the future. Nice. So look forward to that for season three. But for now, we're going to be live again tomorrow night around about the same time doing another episode, which in after the fact will be coming out two weeks after this episode goes live. And then I am considering for our 51st episode, I might put the actual 51st episode on hold and I will do a retrospective special edition um, for, as a bonus episode over the new year where I will feature the um, segments where we had the highest scoring idiots of all Ooh. time. Yeah, I might do three of them, some get some really high scoring idiots in there. So expect some planet killers, some stabby professional wrestlers, and other people on that list as well. So <laughs> prepare yourselves. Um, yeah, if you do want to follow us again on social media, um, please follow us at History's Greatest Idiots on Instagram and at Greatest Idiots on Twitter. And also, if you'd like to throw us some money, Go to patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots and become one of our Patreons. If you want to sling us some money as well, um, I do have um, in my link tree, I have uh, what's it called? A Kofi page. If you'd like to just give us a one off sponsorship, I will share that money with Derek. And yay. Uh, yay. <laughs> and yeah, generally just um, give us a follow, uh, subscribe to the podcast if you can. 
we're approaching 50 episodes. Tomorrow is going to be our 50th episode ever. It's huge. Yeah, we've covered well over 100 idiots at this point. That's insane. You know? I, yeah, I, I'm surprised that, that uh, initially I wasn't sure yeah. uh, how many I was going to be able to do. And then, you know, <laughs> we're <laughs> humans. Yeah. So. But uh, yeah, I thought it was going to be limited, but um, I was I was going to uh, I initially when I was doing this, I was like, I can say, oh, we've done 100 idiots now. But actually, we've done loads more because we've done like couples. I did one couple from Hollywood. We did an entire Spanish men's basketball team. Um, the, we did like an entire company at one point. So was it the, the whole crew of artists that yep. built an apartment in a mall? Yeah, that that crew of anarchist artists who decided to live inside a mall illegally for like five years or whatever it was, those crazy bastards. Man, we've had well over a hundred idiots at this point. It's been a, a really amazing ride. We're on uh, nearly nineteen thousand all-time plays now. We're on well over two hundred thousand downloads, which is like just amazing. And next episode will be at our fiftieth. So. Stick around for that. And then the episode after episode 50 will be our uh, greatest hits, um, greatest idiots, I guess you could say at this point. But for then, until next time, Derek, would you like to say goodbye to everyone? Goodbye, everybody. We will see you again either tomorrow or in two weeks' time when the episode goes live. All right, take care, everybody. Bye.